there. For the rest of us, we this morning we enter into a new sermon series. It's been largely and will probably largely continue to be our practice to work our way through different books of the Bible. Uh, we just got finished with the book of Mark, and this morning we start in the book of Judges. Now, whenever um, I've mentioned that to people or whenever they've heard that, I've heard the constant question of why the book of Judges, and my immediate response to it would be, well, why not? It's the scripture, right? Uh, but at the same time, I understand your question, and, and yes, there were some reasons going into it, and, and ultimately, I, I think the book of Judges, it speaks well into the world in which we live. We, we just came out of a series uh, that we called Follow the King, Follow Jesus, and this morning we start a series that we've named A Kingless Kingdom, uh, and that isn't... Um, by mistake or, or, or just by happen chance, that's, that's very intentional. The book of Judges, there's a refrain, and we see it in the very last book of Judges. It says this, in those days, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as we go through Judges, we're going to see that, how, how we tend to live as though we are our own king and rule over ourselves. We're gonna, as we move through the book of Judges, we'll, we'll see how bad... And sometimes I think we, we struggle to think that it's really that bad, how bad sin really is. Um, we will see many of our idols uh, laid out uh, before us. And I want to warn you that as we, we do go through this series, you, you may be tempted to line up the book of Judges with what we see happening in the world around us. And think for a moment that this book is just applicable to those outside of these walls somehow. What I hope we'll see is that this book is very much shows us our hearts and where our hearts really are so often, how so often we dethrone Jesus and enthrone ourselves. Now, a couple of notes as we, we do jump into this series, it'll be a little different than like say going through Mark is we're not going to read every single verse in here on Sunday mornings necessarily. So we encourage you to read it outside um, of this time so you can have some context uh, for it. And um, also, you, you may, as we read it, even as I read this morning, you may say, what, why in the, you, you may again ask the question, why in the world are we reading this? I, I, we, we read Judges 1 at the dinner table this past week, and, and one of my kids says, what's the point of that? You know, as we read Judges 1, we're, we're going to hear it's just a history of conquest, and it's like, well, what in the world does this have to say to us? I hope somehow we're going to find something to say to us this morning, or all of this is in vain, right? And secondly, there's another thing just to note. Um, while one of my kids said that, another kid at, at, at points had their hands over their ears because there were some things like, oh, no, I don't know that I want to hear that. And as we move through Judges, there may be some things that are actually quite shocking to us. Uh, be reminded these were not shocking things to the original readers, to the original hearers of this. This was the world in which they lived. Okay? With those things in mind, let, let's turn to the Scripture now, Judges Chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel had inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the, hand, the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will, will go um, with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him, 
Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled. But they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. I know. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and, and captured it and, and struck it with the edge of the sword in the city. And they set on fire, and afterwards the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly called Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shashai and Ahiman and Telamai. And then down to verse 17 in Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zapath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. In verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out. In verse 30, Zebulon did not drive out. Verse 31, and Asher did not drive out. And then finally, Naphtali did not drive out. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you this morning. We thank you for your word, and, and we confess, we, we read it, and we hear about a bunch of battles and conquests and wonder, does this really have meaning for us today? I pray that you would bring us that meaning today. Would you use your word to be at work on our hearts, drawing us more to you, we pray. Amen. Now, Many, most of you, and we've talked about it before, you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, and you know those, those four Pevensey children, right? And how they go through the wardrobe to get into Narnia. Um, and if you remember, the, the way that they originally got in is the littlest girl, Lucy, found her way into to Narnia through the wardrobe, and, and she came back so excited about the land that she was in, right? She, was, she had wholehearted devotion to Narnia, if you want to talk about it like that. She was so excited. Now. Edmund had also, the, the younger brother, he had also found his way into Narnia, and he came back with a slightly different message, right? First calling Lucy a liar, but whenever he was in Narnia, he actually saw a darkness kind of overtake him as he found himself with the witch, and she uh, seduced him, if you will, with evil, and he wanted what she had. He, she wanted that chocolate that he, that he hadn't wanted those for himself, Susan and Peter didn't know what to make of it. They were kind of lukewarm with Narnia, like, do we believe Lucy? Do, do we believe Edmund? As we, as we dive into this text this morning, I want to see, we, we kind of have that similar outlooks on the promised land. Here are the Israelites. They're going into the promised land. There's some different outlooks as, as we go through the different tribes, as I just read through some of them. Judah, in particular, seems to, to, to be, have a wholehearted 
desire and love for this land that they're going into, in a sense, but we're going to see that there's some half-heartedness there too. Some of the tribes seem to be much more half-hearted. Some seem to have little heart at all for this land that they've been given and that they're now in after having gone through slavery. And so we're going to see that this morning. Now we need to set the stage and just be reminded that this all starts back with Abraham, right? And Genesis 12 and and 15, we, we see God make an incredible promise to Abraham. He calls Abraham out of idolatry and says, Abraham, I'm going to give you these incredible promises. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you a land. This land, this promised land, it's going to be yours, but you're not going to really get it yet. It's going to be your descendants that are going to get it. And, and we see that play out through his children, right? And, and where do his children's children end up? but in Egypt, enslaved, and, and Moses comes in and, and rescues them and brings them out and, and takes them over a long period. Of course, it takes them because of their disobedience, but takes them to the promised land, the, this place that they had been told about, that Moses was telling them, this is the place that God has for you. It is to be yours. And in Joshua, you read about those initial conquests, like the Battle of Jericho, where, where the people go in and they begin to take the land. In our text this morning, Joshua is now dead. But the work isn't done. In fact, Joshua, right before he died, he said this. He said, I'm now old and well advanced in years. You've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I've allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations, and I've, I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you. He'll drive them out of your sight. Joshua's telling them what's going to happen is, even after he's gone, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside neither to the, to the left or to the right, that you may not mix with those nations. Do not mention their names of their gods or swear by them or serve them. He's calling them to what? To, to cling to him and to him only. And then he says, be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given to you. This is the call that the Israelites have as we start, Joshua, uh, as we start Judges. They're to finish what, what Joshua started. Now, as we hear the book, the words of Joshua, there's probably some questions that come to mind a little bit for you. Maybe like, how could God call them to do this? Isn't this a bit extreme? To, to, to wipe out all these people and to, to just get rid of them from the land? Really? We're going to come back to that question, so hold on to it. I first want us to just kind of see the flow of this text and what God is doing, and then we're going to come back and try to answer that question um, a bit. What we do see, if we just follow the Scripture through, is that, that they are called to possess this land and to possess it totally, right? They're, they're not to leave any of the inhabitants there and because if you do, they're going to be a trap to you, a whip to your sides, thorns in your eyes, God says. He warns them. And so here at the beginning of Joshua's, 
jo- judges, Joshua is, is now dead. And so they are asking the question, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Because here they are, they're leaderless. They're just a bunch of tribes. And they don't have a leader anymore. They had Moses, and then they have Joshua. Now they have nobody. What are we to do? And what does God say? God says, well, Judah shall go up, behold, I have given the land into his hands. And now Judah is not, we're not talking about a specific person. We're talking about the tribe. Okay? So still, God doesn't raise up an individual. He says that the tribe of Judah is going to lead you. And so our passage here, first chapter of of Judges, starts off positively. What do we see next in verse 3? But Judah goes and he, he gets his younger brother, he gets Simeon. Simeon's kind of like a lesser tribe, not as powerful, not as strong. And he, he goes to this lesser tribe and he said, hey, let's team up. Let's do this together. Let's do this by teamwork. And this is positive, okay? And the stronger, they, they, they team up. And then what happens? We see it in verse 4. And, and following, they begin to have victories. First victories over the Canaanites and the Perizzites, some 10,000 of them. And the victories, they continue. They, they, they're able to capture Jerusalem for a period. They fight in the hill country and then again, all, all is going well. That's the picture you should have as, as you start reading through the book of Judges. Things are going well. They're doing what they've been called to do. They're possessing more and more of the land. Then we get to verse 19. And I don't know if you noticed it when I was reading it earlier. But we see here in verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country. This is good. This is positive, right? He's, he's taken the hill country, and who is with him? How is it that he's able to do this? But with God. The Lord is at work. The Lord is the one that's at battle. And then we read the second half of this verse, and we're left scratching our heads a bit. But, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. I don't know about you, but that immediately makes me begin to ask some questions. What in the world is going on here? Wasn't God with Judah? Does this mean somehow that God wasn't able to drive them out? I think we have to conclude that that can't be the case, right? God is certainly powerful enough. Look at what he did at at Jericho and, and everywhere else up until this moment. I think we must, and what must be implied here is that Judah, strong Judah, Judah, who's been wholehearted, in a sense, in our text up until this moment, has suddenly had a failure. What was this failure? We're not told exactly what it is. Is it a failure of will, maybe? A failure of fear, like, oh, you know, this is kind of scary, iron chariots. Or is it maybe a failure that said, look at everything, look at all of this ground that we've already captured, isn't it enough? I mean, we've got plenty, we're good, they're over there, we're over here. Everything's okay. Isn't it good enough? So we see failure begin to creep into our passage. Things seem to be going so well, but then we hear that, and then we start reading the other negative news that we read. Verse 21, Benjamin didn't drive out. And then Manasseh didn't drive out. Ephraim didn't drive out. Zebulun didn't drive out. Asher didn't drive out. Naphtali didn't drive out. In the midst of that, you see Joseph doing well. But we see a failure, right? Now, we can read that and we can think, oh, they're, they're just completely not doing what God called them to do. But I don't think that's the case. What we see here, I think, in this text is maybe attempts at wholeheartedness in places, but then a whole lot of half-heartedness. 
Look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Do you see, do you see what they're doing? And, and this happens with multiple of the tribes. They're, they're doing what, part of what God called them to do. Okay? They're, they're doing part of it, but they stop from doing it in completion. You see? They, they, they start to do it, and then they think, well hey, it might be nice to have servants and slaves to do what we want and to help us out. You know, they, they begin to put themselves ultimately in the place of God and say, hey, maybe we know better. They're only partially doing what God has called them to do, okay? What we see here, I think, in this text is a people moving kind of from the beginnings. There's a sense of wholeheartedness, and it moves more and more to a half-hearted people, a people who are partially following And it it leaves us, I think, asking the question this morning, uh, are you half-hearted? Do you struggle with half-heartedness, being a partial disciple? Do you struggle with that idea that that we saw in our last sermon series, follow the king, do you you really follow him? Do Do you follow him fully and completely? Do you struggle to do so? Do you... Are there areas of your life where you kind of refuse to allow him in, as we've talked about before? And maybe, and to put things even in a starker contrast this morning, maybe it's even better to ask the question this way. How are you allowing sin to get a foothold in your life? How are you allowing sin to get a foothold into your life? John Owen puts it beautifully and terribly in a way. When he says, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. What we see in our passage this morning, and let's not call it anything other, is but sin creeping in. A people thinking, well, maybe we kind of know better here, we know better there. And sin creeps in. And sin begins to take over. And as we move through the book of Judges, what are we going to see? But a people more and more consumed with sin. It starts out in small ways, and it grows into big ways. It starts out small, and it turns into gangrene. It's that reality that we're going to see play out in the book of Judges. We're going to see sin come in, take just a little foothold, sometimes big footholds. And Israel is going to fail to truly deal with that sin. And when, we don't, and when they didn't deal with the sin, what happens? It, it kills Israel more and more. Folks, that same thing happens to you and I. Where you allow sin to have a foothold. Where you allow something else to have majesty in your life. Something else to be the king of your life. It's going to come in. And it's going to come in more and more. And take over. Be killing sin. Or it will be killing you. I think that's part of what we see playing out, and we're going to see it play out more and more as, as we go, as, as we go through Judges, and we see not just a cycle, there is a cycle that we see in Judges, but it's a spiral, a downward spiral of Israel as they sink deeper and deeper into their sin, allowing sin to have a deeper and deeper foothold. Now, all of this still leaves us with some difficult questions, doesn't it? The difficult questions of like, okay, I understand, we're, we're, we're called to be obedient, But why is Israel called to be obedient in this way? It seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? To just completely clear out these people in this area. 
Now, back to Narnia for a minute. Um, you may not know, but there's a little bit of a controversy stirring in more recent years over the very last book, The Last Battle, where some other children's book authors like J.K. Rowling have taken umbrage with it. They're, 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 they aren't very excited about part of it. And the part that they don't like is with regards to Susan, one of those Pevensey kids. And to spoil the whole story of that last book for you, three of the four Pevensey children are there on that last day of Narnia. Three of the four children make it into the Narnian version of the new heavens and the new earth. And one individual asks, where is Queen Susan? And her brother Peter says, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. Another says, oh, Susan, she's, she's only interested in nothing nowadays except for nylons and lipstick and invitations. She's all about being grown up. Now, people like Rowling and others are upset. Like, how can you not let Susan in? How can you keep Susan from the promised land, if you will? It seems so extreme, right? But Lewis wrote her out of the story. Why? because she no longer believed in Narnia. I think we have a similar question before us this morning in the book of Judges. We saw it in verse 17, and I don't know if you noticed the actual language. It's very stark language. Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zapath, and they devoted it to destruction. So the city, name of the city was called Hormah. Here we have this language. This language of devoted to destruction, that the calling was to totally get rid of everything. And that this comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, where, 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 where Moses gives kind of the parting words for the people as they are about to possess the promised land. He says this in chapter 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many of the nations before you. And we have a list of all the ites there. And when the Lord, your God, gives them over to you and you defeat them, then, he says, you must devote them to the total destruction, complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall, harsh words here, show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to them, their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly. And at the very end of that chapter, Moses says this, and you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You see, Moses is telling the people something very strong. He's saying that not only are you called to destroy these people, you, you need to be careful. Don't, don't even hang on to any of their stuff. Because if you're not careful, that status of being devoted to destruction that's upon them, it's going to come upon you. If you get too close to them, if you intermingle with them, Israel must be careful or that same status of being devoted to destruction is going to come upon them. Now, this, leaves, this is hard, isn't it? I don't like this. I don't like having to, to preach on this, but this is the text that is before us this morning. And I know you'll, you'll probably, I'm not going to answer all your questions in the next couple of minutes. 
Maybe I'll hopefully answer a few. If you have any more questions, you can pick them up with Peter. He'll be happy to answer them all. I'm serious about that. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm kidding, I guess. Yes, I'll take your questions too. But I just want to share a few things with you that may be helpful as we think through this. Okay, If you're keeping score, I think there's six of them. Um, first, God is the great king. He is the great king. Our sermon series, a, a kingless kingdom. God, he is the great king. He is the creator. He's the one who, who made everything, and let's not lose that in this picture. The apostle Paul is dealing with a similar situation, not exactly the same, but a similar um, question in Romans 9, and he says this. But who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In other words, who can say to the Creator, why have you done it this way? You see, we, we, we come to the passage before us this morning, either as one who have a great king, who rules over everything, or as ones who try to rule ourselves. And I hope that as we come and we try to ask questions of the text this morning, that we come as those who understand that we have a great king, the one who created everything and who is good, even when we can't understand him. Even when we're left scratching our head and, and with questions asking why. Okay? So God is our great king. Second, this, what the Israelites are called to do here in this place, this is not normative for all war, even for Israel. Okay? Deuteronomy 20.10. This is what's normative for Israel. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, what? Offer it terms of peace. It goes on to say how you need to, you go, need to try to protect the women and the children and, and even the livestock of the land. Okay, so what we're talking about this morning, about being devoted to, this isn't how all war is to be fought, okay? This is for Israel in a specific time, in a specific place, against a specific, some specific peoples, okay? And it's certainly not normative for us, okay? Unless anyone misses that. Third, also understand this, this isn't a command for genocide, okay? It's, it's not God against some particular ethnic group or some particular race. That, that, that's not what's at question here. In fact, do you, do you remember back in Joshua what happens whenever they're, they're going into Jericho? What happens with Rahab? She's one of them. She's one of those who is devoted to destruction. But what happens? She repents. She repents and is no longer devoted to destruction. It's not an ethnic thing. It's driven, understand, number four, it's driven by morality. In Deuteronomy 9, Moses says this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has, has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas, and get this, understand this, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. The reason is because they are that bad. These are a people who regularly committed child sacrifice. Okay? And we could list a whole litany of other just nasty, gross sins of these people. Okay? This in a sense, it's an act of divine judgment 
okay? It isn't, in a sense, it's, it's not Israel's war. <laughs> it's God's war. It's driven by their morality. And, and to help you there, maybe just listen to Rahab's words for a minute. Okay, Rahab was one of them, one of those who was devoted to destruction. And this is what she says. Chapter 2, Joshua. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites um, who were beyond the Jordan to, the, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. She said, We've, we heard all the news coming to us. Everybody here. We all heard about it. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. The people in the land, they knew everything. that They, they knew Israel was on the way. They knew what God was about doing. For this Lord, your God, He is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. The people, they knew it. Only Rahab repented. Do you, see, do you understand? Everybody else, they knew. They knew what was coming for them. And they stayed in their sin. Be killing sin. Or it will be killing you. Rahab knew. And she turned to Yahweh. The rest of the Canaanites and all the other ites, they didn't. <laughs> they knew, but they didn't turn to God. Remember, in the context as we talk about devoted to destruction, there is always room for repentance. You see that illustrated in, in the book of Jonah, right? What are the Ninevites? The Ninevites are in a sense, they're devoted to destruction. Destruction is coming their way. But what happens when they repent? God relents, doesn't he? It's amazing. He has mercy on them. And understand also in this context that God has at this point had incredible patience with the people of the land, these people that are devoted to destruction. All the way back in Genesis 15, Whenever God was t telling Abraham about the future, telling him about the future plans for that his people were kind of telling him about that they were going to be enslaved in Egypt. And then he says, um, in verse 16, and they shall come back. Your, your people, your, your, your children's children will come back in the fourth generation. And why does he wait that long? He says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, God has been incredibly patient with them. He's allowed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to pass before he finally brings judgment. Okay. I know all that, you know, I'm saying all that. It doesn't necessarily make this easier. But we need to understand how, how Scripture talks about these things. Which brings us to, to number five. That, and it's connected with the previous one about morality. And that, that is that, God is a just God, and he demands justice. L let's not miss that. Do, do, do you believe what Paul says, that the wages of sin is death? Do, do you really believe that the wages of sin is death? Do you believe, do you understand that sin is really that bad? I think some of our problem is sometimes we don't think it's as nearly as bad as it is. We don't understand how terrible it is. 
Yes, God can show mercy. And yes, God does show mercy. And yes, God was actually merciful with the Canaanites and the others for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's interesting. Judges 1, you know, it just reads, it's mainly, it's just history of like all these conquests, right? And that's why we look at it and we're like, what in the world is going on here? And, and, and we're not really, the, the author doesn't step back or we don't have a third party really coming in and giving like a summary or what we're supposed to think about everything that's going on. The interesting thing though, in chapter one, there's only one individual that does that and it's actually an unbeliever, a pagan that does it. Did you notice when I read it earlier? Verse five, this is what he says. They found Adonai, Bezek. They fought against him. They defeated him. He fled, right? But they pursued him. They caught him. And, and this is where we kind of, you know, put our hands over our ears a little bit. But they, 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 they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now we look at that and we just think of how terrible this is. How atrocious, how cruel. What's interesting is that Adonai Bezek gets it right. His theology, I think, is correct. I'm not saying he became a believer or anything. But he understands the realities. Do you see what he says there? Seventy kings with their thumbs and and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. He understands justice. He understands that he's getting justice. Rightful justice. I know we sometimes don't like how justice plays out. But do we really believe that the wages of sin is really death? And lastly, there are many other things that we could say about this to help us understand it. This one is really important, and I think it's important for our own individual growth. And that that is that God commands us out of love for his people. In Deuteronomy 7, he says this, It was not because you were more in number, than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Egypt. God has set his love upon Israel, just as he set his love upon his people gathered here today. Okay? And God desires to protect his people. Now, some of the Israelites in that day, and I kind of wonder if if Judges 1 doesn't play out the way that it does because some of the people are sitting there thinking, all right, God, we we get it, but we're never going to do what those people are doing. Talk about the child sacrifice. Oh, we are never going to be sacrificing our children. That's just crazy talk, right? You know what happens in the days of Solomon? 1 Kings 11, verse 5. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians. And remember, this is only just a couple of generations after. And, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab. And he built a high place for who? Molech. Do you know what high places of Molech were used for? You know what you did there? That's where you would commit these child sacrifices. And I'm not saying that that immediately began to take place in that day. We don't know. This is the danger. 
This is the reason why God's going, you know, the Israelites probably are first, like I said, thinking, oh, we're never going to go there. Judges teaches us, oh, no, you start going there. You leave sin a foothold, it begins to kill you. Earlier, we read those words of Joshua. What did, what did he say would happen? But if you do this, what's going to happen? They shall be a snare and a trap for you. If you, if you let these people remain, they're going to be a snare and a trap for you, a whip for your sides, a thorn in your eyes until you perish from this good ground the Lord God has given you. That's what we're going to see play out. Because they don't do what God has called them to do. Folks, if, if, if you aren't killing sin, it will kill you. God calls the Israelites to do this for their own protection. He knows how strong the call of sin is and can be in our lives. He knows how quickly its desire can take a hold of us. Out of love for his people, out of a desire to protect them, he does this. You see, this is where we need to take pause. If we're not careful, our half-heartedness, our lack of wholeheartedness can grow. And it can grow like gangrene. Don't look at it as the Israelites did and say, oh no, we could never go there. Of course, that'll never happen to us. And as we continue through Judges, we're going to see this play out time and time again. Now, to bring this all to a sense of conclusion and Hopefully, maybe to bring a little light into the room. I know this is heavy. Um, it doesn't start out light, though. Do, do you understand the reality before us this morning? I read the passage a moment ago from Romans 6, that the wages of sin is death. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand that that means that you and I are rightfully devoted to destruction? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that sin is that serious in your life? In Ephesians, Paul puts it in a slightly different way. He says this. He says, you who are dead in your trespasses and sin. He's talking about the same thing, right? In which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you understand that that's you without Christ? Do you understand that everybody, we're all rightfully devoted to destruction. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's what makes these next words in Ephesians so powerful. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. By grace. Not because you've worked really hard for it. And has raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Do you understand what this is saying? Do you understand that the Holy One 
was sent from the Father's throne above. And, and as we talked about just a few weeks ago in Mark, that, that He, the perfect one, was hung on a tree. That He was devoted to destruction for us so that we would never have to be. Do do you understand how incredible that is? That the one who who never did anything wrong, he, he, he was devoted to destruction for us. Do you understand that great and incredible truth that he took the curse upon himself? That he has saved us, that he has rescued us. Do you believe that it's true? And that one, that, that one who is devoted to destruction before us, he, he calls us now to no longer be devoted to those things, but to be devoted to him. To, to not for a moment allow, allow sin moments to, to get footholds in our life. Because we know what he has done, what he has accomplished. We know the victory that has been won in Christ. And we know the work that he is now doing in us. Do you believe it? Do, do you really believe you're... you're, 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 you're you, we, I am no different than the Canaanites, except, except for Christ. And that is what changes everything. Do you believe it? Let's pray. But Father, this is weighty. And heavy. And I think sometimes we struggle to believe that the words before us on the pages, like Judges and Joshua and Deuteronomy, as we've read many passages from, we struggle to believe that they're true because we don't want them to be true about ourselves. And Father, would you help us to see? how incredibly merciful you are, how incredibly gracious you are, and how gracious you are that you, that you have saved us. Oh, Father, if there are any here this morning who who, who don't know you, but yet who who know and who are beginning to see their sin and the foothold and the huge foothold and the, the killing that it is doing within them. Oh, Father, would you help them to turn to you for all of us? Oh, Father, would you help us to see sin for what it is? Something that in and of itself, devotes us to destruction. And yet, in Christ, in Christ we have such rich mercies and such a great love. 
that has been set on us. We thank you this morning for the incredible work of Christ on our behalf. Would you be with us now as we go into this week that we would go forth as those who are devoted, devoted to you, the one who gave everything for us. And it is in Jesus Christ's name, his matchless name, that we pray. Amen.